So how's everything going? Good. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 16 of the Chalk Dust Podcast, where teachers talk about their experiences in the classroom. Because once the dust settles, every teacher has a story to tell. This is Kirby Alexander, your host, and today I'm talking with Clint Allen, a middle school social studies teacher in Arlington, Texas. I met Clint in 2019 when I spoke at the induction ceremony for the National Junior Honor Society at the Oak Ridge School. Clint started off as a youth minister, but he has spent the last several years teaching in both public and independent schools. Clint is an inspirational educator, and I learned so much from talking with him. Let's go ahead and get started. So Clint, it's so great to see you. I'm, I'm really glad you could join us today, and I appreciate you taking some time out of your busy schedule to, uh, to talk with me about, uh, about your teaching experience and about what's been going on. Awesome. It's great to be here, Kirby. Thanks for having me. So, you know, I guess to get started, uh, tell me a little bit about what you're doing now. Uh, where are you teaching? What do you teach? How long have you been teaching? Uh, that kind of thing. So I'm currently at the Oak Ridge School in Arlington here, Arlington, Texas. Uh, this is just finishing up my third year of teaching here at Oak Ridge. And currently this year, um, it's been different every year. I teach fifth and sixth graders. So we consider that middle school here at Oak Ridge. Fifth grade really is considered middle school, which is different than most schools. Um, And so I've taught fifth and sixth grade history this year. So both the first half of world history and the second half of world history. So a real uh, fun and experience, uh, needless to say, with fifth and sixth graders. Um, I've taught um, anywhere between fifth grade and juniors in high school. Um, Prior to being here at the Oak Ridge School, I was in public school in Dallas um, for for three, uh, for four years, one year as a Mm -hmm. a long-term sub, and then three years as an in classroom teacher. Um, this is really a second career for me. I was uh, uh, worked in youth ministry previous to that for 15 years. So this is a, a new chapter in my life that I've really enjoyed, even in my what some might call my middle life uh, in terms of in my 40s now. So um, when I was in public school, I taught world geography, uh, most of the histories. I even had the pleasure of teaching an avid class, um, which was mm-hmm. a really uh, unique opportunity and probably is fundamental in even the way that I teach history class um, is a lot based on what I learned um, as an avid instructor and also as an avid teacher. So I've been a fun experience to say the least um, over the last six, seven years uh, moving into education. Yeah, that sounds like it for sure. Um, And a lot of different experiences, uh, which I'm sure, you know, from, I can say for myself, every time I've taught that experience feeds into the next experience. So, you know, yeah, that when you start in one place, it, it's you're coming from somewhere, and then it leads you to another, right? Like you said, it's been a real fun journey, to say the least. No, that's great. So, you know, what led you into a, a teaching career? You know, you mentioned that you started off in, you know, youth ministry. So, you know, what what was something that interested you in choosing teaching as your career? Uh, so I'd probably contributed to two or three things, first of which I come from a family of educators. Both my grandparents were educators. Uh, my mom, before she was a mom and even got her Master of Divinity at TCU mm-hmm. as a second career for her, she was actually an educator. Um, and so both my brother and sister were educators. So it's certainly been a, a, what you would call the family business. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad, although he's a retired physician, uh, teaches Sunday school and always loved the idea of teaching. So it's very natural um, in terms of being led back to it. Yeah. I love working with teenagers. Not everybody likes teens. Uh, they think they're goofy and crazy, which they are, and we were probably at some point. But um, I've always loved the idea that I uh, I think kids need a village. 
not just mom and dad, right? And mm-hmm. so being yeah. part of that village has been a motivation. I love structure. Um, I didn't realize when I was working in the church, although it was structured, it was 24-7, 365 in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. What I like about education is you sort of know when you're going to start. You sort of know when it's going to end. And you see that beginning and end for students, right? Um, mm-hmm. And so for me, realizing a bell schedule, even though it kind of, you know what you're going to do every day, there's some structure to it. Yeah. Um, and then three, um, you know, I, I, my grandfather was a history teacher and a high school football coach for over 30 years. And hmm. although I'm not a football coach, I've coached in my last seven years, moving into education as well, just teaching. Yeah. But carrying that legacy on to him, uh, you know, um, I, not only him, but I had some very significant teachers and educators in my career as a, as a kid, as a student, who I still am connected with today. And yeah. for me, it's standing on their shoulders of what they taught me and loved me through in my life. Um, and so the fact that I'm able to pass that on to another generation to me is my contribution to the world because hmm. they did it for me. Um, yeah. And I feel like that's my calling is just carrying that torch forward for them. Well, that's great. And so, you know, you've, you've been doing this a while and I'm, you know, I imagine by now you've had, you know, several hundred students at this point, you know, and I know from my own experience, you know, some of them you keep in touch with some or you never see again after they leave the school or leave your classroom. Uh, but you know, with, with seeing so many different students, how do you judge success for yourself as a teacher? You know, cause uh, among all those students, some of them, you know, probably do really well. They respond to you really well. Uh, they may go on to do great things. Others, you know, you may never hear from again, or, you know, they don't, they don't maybe uh, do so well in school. So, you know, for yourself, how do you judge success? So, um, on, I guess on a personal level, success or even a professional level, you know, it's it's seeing where that relationship started with that student and where it ended up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like you said, whether that ends nine months later when you finish that class with them and you never see them again, or you know, whether it's from my youth ministry days or even teaching days, you know, I'm still connected to to those kids, right? Where they mm-hmm. reached back out, and so uh, success to me has never been defined by whether they are an A plus student or B plus or C or even struggle to even make C's. It's defined by, are they inspired to be a better human? Yeah. Um, that's success to me. Um, I, and I don't say that in terms of that I've always been successful or been um, good at everything that I've done. I think mm-hmm. I've probably learned more from my failures than I have my successes. And so finding opportunities to have those learning and teaching moments, not only as an educator, but as a human with those students, right? I mean, mm-hmm. uh, the last year with pandemic, especially, I've had kids that started with me coming into middle school as fifth graders who because of the pandemic, they allowed me to teach them again this year. Mm-hmm. So I've seen a two-year relationship with them to see where they started and where they, they've ended up. And so success to me is that kid who never spoke in class is standing up and doing a project in front of the class who you know would have never uh, had the ability to go do and look up a, what a primary source is, right? Mm-hmm. Or uh, the kid that was always so loud and the leader learned to be that servant leader, right, that is empowering others around um, him or her. Yeah. Uh, to me, that success is defined actually, you know, by an overall blanket statement of these kids are successful because they make A pluses. But, you know, the unique thing about being at Oak Ridge and having smaller class sizes mm-hmm. is I really have gotten to know those 45 sixth graders. Right. And so uniquely to them, success is individually, um, you know, detailed in terms of who they were and who they are becoming. Right. And yeah. if I don't see them for the rest of their lives, my hope is, is that. They remember the time they, you know, they did a project with me 
yeah. or the time that we had that fun experience learning about building a castle when we study the Middle Ages, right? It's creating and capturing those moments with them and instilling with them the value of that yeah. so that one day when my little girls are 10 and 11, 12 years old, in about 10 years, so most kids might be first year teachers, right? That are right. teaching them some of those things that um, I've taught them. So it's to me, it's about instilling that uh, inspiration to inspire others, that mm-hmm. love and kindness. I'll probably have a chance to talk a little bit more about Mr. Rogers, but I'm a huge <laughs> Mr. Rogers fan. I have yeah. a kindness wall in my room. Um, That's and awesome. I'm physically show it to you just because, you know, we're on a, a Zoom and only have the audio, but it's a yeah. kindness wall. My kids actually write words of kindness to one another. And if they're having a good day, they write a word of kindness for somebody else. If they're having a bad day, they get to pull a word of kindness off the board to remind them, you know, of what life is truly about and that's to be kind to one another. So yeah. to me, it's instilling that. That's success to me is when I'm instilling things to them that aren't necessarily a history related, but they're transformative to their life. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and I can also tell you I am a huge Mr. Rogers fan. Yay. Yeah, I in no, fact we didn't talk about Mr. Rogers and what he's done for you and I personally. Then oh my word! Doing doing justice to passing that on to generations, right? No, absolutely. You know, I, you know, without getting into it too much, you know, just the fact that you know it doesn't matter what you do or what you have to say, you can always do it with kindness. And Amen. right, yeah. there's no yeah, to me if you can't do anything else, like you said, be kind to one another, regardless of circumstance and. And how you pass on whatever information it is. So. Right, exactly. And if we would all remember that, you know, then those moments where I'm not very kind, you know, they can, I, it can be returned with kindness, and I can learn. Oh wait, you know, I need to get myself back on track here. <laughs> and that's that's the beautiful thing about Mr. Rogers, right? I mean, again, like you said, not to get too far off. I mean, he was going to, to you know seminary, right, to work yeah. in the church, and realized his calling was TV, and so he just played that role out. And I guess for me. That's what success is. I'm called to serve others. I feel like that's all of our calling in some way, shape, or form. But I have the gift of being able to do that with teenagers and, and young people. And so hmm. if I'm instilling to them that somebody outside of their village, their mom and dad, their nuclear family, you know, loves and cares for them as much as their parents do, then they know there's somebody else out there that they can go and do that for, right? It's passing that on, like you said, of yeah. that opportunity to learn a lesson, no matter however young or old you are. And that's what Mr. Rogers, I think, always taught us. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, I know that you've been teaching now for, you know, for several years, and it's probably a lot different now, this profession, than when you started. So, you know, what do you see as some of the the biggest changes or shifts um, in education since you started as a teacher? So, So two things that I would say certainly have changed. Um, only one is obvious because I went from a public school to Mm -hmm. an independent or private school. So the idea of how you even, you know, teach to a test, right. That they might say that you're teaching to the the star test or, you know, that you're teaching certain, Hmm. you know, teaks in a public school with certain lesson plans, right. That they're very driven in a certain way. I've got to meet these certain benchmarks along the way. And as I've moved into independent school, you know, um, my middle school principal has basically looked at me and said, Clint, you know, what's your goal this year? What are you, what are you trying to achieve? And so, you know, my first year at Oak Ridge, instead of getting a final, we did a talent show. Hmm. Um, I think that's when you and I sort of first encountered each other was um, around that same time when I I was motivated, inspired by our forming of a relationship when you came and and gave our, we're our guest speaker at our national junior honor society. Mm -hmm. And it motivated me to want to step outside my comfort zone of not just looking at students as an A plus, a B plus, a C plus, or, whatever grading system, but was to allow them to express themselves in whatever way, shape, form 
and still achieve the same goal, right? Um, yeah. And so I've been able to put on a talent show about first half of American history with seventh graders. Last wow. year, my fifth graders built virtual worlds of ancient um, uh, historical sites like Egypt and Mesopotamia in either Minecraft or Roblox wow. and teach us about that in a virtual world. This year, uh, my, same fifth, uh, my new fifth graders are doing that, but now my sixth graders, we do what used to be called Children of the World, where they did a, a, a poster board of telling all information about a country in the world that they've picked. I digitized that to use a website called ThingLink, where it's oh, basically yeah. like a digital st- uh, storytelling board where they put different icons all over that country of their choice, recorded themselves in front of their poster board <clears throat> or dressed up that part or uh, created a voiceover video. So for me, although I'm a, I'd like to think fairly technology savvy, mm-hmm. the technology part of education, right? Going from, although I haven't been in the profession a long, long time, I've been in it long enough to where just the use of, you know, um, uh, edgy puzzle, right? What, whatever the digital yeah. buzzwords or keywords or even thing link to, to use, mm-hmm. you know, 21st century skills that kids have known their entire life, like Minecraft, yeah. right? My fifth and sixth graders, that's been their entire lifetime, right? For, for you and I, that's a 10 year period. That's like, cool. It's a new tool that kids use. Mm-hmm. These kids eat, live and breathe it. So when I say to them, we're doing a project in Minecraft where you can tell us your final project and how it's built and what you might've imagined it looking like 3000 years ago, their eyes get huge and then i get emails from parents saying you're letting my kid do you know minecraft in your history class well yeah it's teaching the same principles it's getting in their world right Um, so to me that's what i've seen changes where i can use things that kids use for fun and use it for education it still teaches the same principles yeah but i've seen that shift in what even you know they've got minecraft uh for education right so they're even using that as a a principle to teach coding in uh, virtual reality that Although I understand Minecraft and I can go visit my students' world, mm-hmm. I can't build anything in that world. I don't have a clue how to do it. Right. Not because I don't want to, but it's more their gear. So I've seen a shift in that way in right. terms of technology. Oh, that's really cool. Students, so, yeah. No, that's great. You know, and I can I can vouch for uh, how much kids love Minecraft because my own kids uh, love it. And it seems, you know, there was a period of time where anytime we would go somewhere, uh, they would want to recreate the things they saw in Minecraft, you know, and they would do that to some extent with Legos too. Uh, but right. with Legos, you, you never have enough Legos to do it at scale, you know. And probably for you and I, if we would have done that in our generation, you wouldn't have been able to capture it or record it, right? Minecraft right. is so beautiful that not only can you build it virtually, you can invite friends that you're friends with. Even my kids like are screen recording it and doing voiceovers mm-hmm. in an iMovie setting. And so like we can capture and digitize that so that as they go throughout their middle school and upper school or high school career, that's a digital portfolio of things that they can use that you and I, although we had Polaroid cameras back then, right? Your kids, specifically yours, right? That could be something that, like you said, they imagine and design yes. and carry with them and even save right on a server somewhere that they could then go back and say, Oh yeah, I remember that time that I did or built that. So, yeah, no, that's really amazing. cool. Yeah, it's amazing. So, you know, and I, and I do remember your, your talent show. Cause that was, you're right. The timeline is exactly right. It was about the time I came and spoke to the national junior honor society. And, um, I remember uh, that we both have a common interest uh, in uh, Hamilton. Cause I think that's what the kids did was they performed some songs from Hamilton. So yeah, yes, no doubt. it only, it doesn't take long for people to realize about me that that's something that I love. <laughs> well, and again, I think, Sorry. I think 
it's finding what kids' passions are. No, I think it leads into, like you said, where, when you start it, it might lead you to the next conversation. For me, being an educator is about finding that itch that a kid wants to scratch, right? Mm-hmm. Whatever, whatever method, whether it's Hamilton, whether it's podcasting, whether it's videos, whether it's documentaries, whether it's, you know, um, memorizing, you know, all the presidents back or whatever that is, it's teaching kids to learn, uh, or, uh, to learn to love the learning process. And it, yes, I teach history, but getting them excited. And I think that's success is when you get a note from a kid that says, I really love your class and learning to love history. Right. And mm-hmm. again, I didn't like history as a kid and it might've been as much because of either who I had teaching me or the fact that I couldn't find something that I enjoyed about it. Right. And if the motivation at the end of the day is to help a kid find what they like about history, if that's building Minecraft or Roblox or whatever the next craze is, then let's do it. Right. I mean, yeah. if it gets you excited that there's possibility there, then let's create opportunities for you to do that. Yeah. That's awesome. Yep. So, you know, switching gears a little bit here, you know, last spring, uh, every educator and student for that matter kind of had their world turned upside down when uh, we, you know, probably all remember where we were when we got the announcement that everything was going to be remote for the rest of the year, or at least, you know, maybe for a few weeks. Um, But, you know, I'm interested to know how your school responded in the short term in the spring to, uh, to the pandemic. And then what uh, adjustments have you made this year? You know, have you had students in class? Have you had uh, a mix of online and in class and kind of what are some of the adjustments you've had to make to, uh, to provide an education for kids in this setting? Um, We, um, it was late February last year, 2020, when we had an all school meeting talking about if we were to go to virtual school or distance learning, as we called it, Mm -hmm. what would that look like? And I guess fortunately for me, because I pretty much am a, like I said, tech heavy type teacher, I don't mind doing real world experiences and hands on projects because I'm, I, I love the idea of projects with my students. But even my Minecraft project that I did last year, that was my first implementation of that project with my fifth graders, mm-hmm. um, knowing that I could still do that virtually, although Zoom really wasn't a thing yet. It yeah. was, you know, an existence of technology, but the use of it from an education standpoint just wasn't there. Um, you've seen the updates of versions that we've had even over the last year of updates that even Zoom has made, uh, mm-hmm. you know, in their coding to, to support educators. Um, and so we had that meeting in late February so we began talking about it in theory, and then we went off to spring break uh, mid-March. We had a two-week spring break, and then essentially everything you know from then was virtual. Yeah. For us, um, we have a one-to-one you know, uh, a program at the school, so every student had an iPad and probably multiple devices. So we were very blessed and fortunate to have mm-hmm. you know, students with that. Um, we even had a two-to-one ratio, so we even had an iPad and uh, a laptop to be able to use, so I could utilize that as well. I distinctly remember calling every one of my fifth graders or their parents on the phone, teaching the kid how to sign up on Zoom, then getting on Zoom with them while I was on the phone with them on the cell phone, hanging up with the cell phone and looking at them uh, on Zoom to make that connection. And so it was a fairly easy transition from a standpoint of creating Zoom, mm-hmm. but definitely a, an interesting learning curve of how we taught from basically you know March through May. Um, a lot of asynchronous learning. Uh, our school schedule was modified in the mornings where we'd go class, 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 and then have asynchronous learning in the afternoons for students to kind of get their work done. Yeah. And then we would have weekly Zoom meetings with grade levels. So every Friday we would Zoom with all of fifth grade or all of sixth grade to just check in with them. Yeah. Um, and so the hardest part for me 
was obviously just digitizing everything. We even implemented Google Classroom, which we had not done before. Mm -hmm. A little bit of a learning curve for some educators who were a little more weathered or uh, more mature than than me in terms of (laughs) experience. But uh, it was a fun experience because a lot of the beautiful thing is, is kids use technology a whole lot more than than, uh, we do. And so they taught us a lot about how to use technology. The difference in terms of rolling into this school year, uh, we had a hybrid scenario. So we knew, you know, at the end of the school year that it was probably going to be some on campus and some at home. Uh, there was a big uh, conversation about whether or not schools were going to be able to open uh, in terms of, you know, what laws or, you know, ordinances that the governor was going to put in place. But ultimately, we were able to open up. And so virtually since August, I've had mm-hmm. one class of sixth graders that I've taught ultimately eight on campus and two on zoom the entire year. Yeah. Uh, a group of fifth grade uh, class that I've taught, uh, 10, uh, on campus and two at home. And so I've been in hybrid mode since August. And wow. I will tell you from a teaching standpoint, I've never been more tired. Huh. Um, I'm like I said, one of six middle school teachers who have a 20 minute break every day. Um, and so I'm, I'm virtually physically, emotionally, spiritually, all those things tired, <laughs> but yeah. we've been able to offer both on campus and, uh, a Zoom offer for every one of our students so that in one way, shape or form, we've been able to, to stay in touch with them and keep them connected. And so yeah. um, it's it's a beautiful thing with technology, but also it's been a struggle because I think there's a whole other flip side to it that we may talk about here in a bit about the social emotional part of who humans are. Yeah. Um, you know, there was a big shift even from semester to semester. So we had an opt in where students could either opt in to be in person on campus, you know, at six feet distances with masks on and spraying down and kids stayed in their room mm-hmm. all day long. Wow. So finally by March of this year, um, we were actually moving kids from pod to pod to the teacher's room. And so we've even had a shift in the way that we've done it mm-hmm. this year. And finally, you know, the last eight to nine weeks of school have felt what I would say more normal or pre pandemic okay. normal with a few changes. Um, but you know, it's been as growing of an experience as an educator and as a human yeah. on how we interact with one another what we take for granted and how we teach um, and how easy you think one thing might be to teach that just falls apart because you forget to put in batteries or your zoom chat isn't working or you've got an unstable connection and the kid at home can't get connected, you know, or they're falling asleep or they don't jump in when you want them to. So yeah, the word pivot has been, although for you and I is a different (laughs) word when Ross is pivoting a couch upstairs, right? (laughs) you know, education, it's the pivot's been the word, right? That you've been able to pivot many, many different ways in terms of the needs of kids. And I still think that's the center of it, right? Yeah. If you're keeping them at the middle of it all, you'll do whatever it takes to help support them because they're experiencing something for the first time, hopefully the only time they ever will in a lifetime Yeah. in the way that we've experienced the last 15 months. So No, absolutely. And, and I think that has been one lesson that a lot of folks have learned is the importance of the social and emotional connection uh, not just between the teacher and the students, between the students and themselves as well, uh, that there's a lot of uh, value in uh, staying connected. And, you know, I, I agree. It's been very exhausting at times trying to even develop that kind of connection with students who you don't see in person. It's it's truly amazing how, and I'm a social emotional person. It's probably in my DNA ever since I was a little boy. And it's something that I try to implement even more so, you know, than the, the history that I teach in class, it's making mm-hmm. sure that students emotional, you know, and social uh, needs are met. And so it's been a very 
uh, it's been a huge barrier this year because again, I have two sixth graders who have not set foot on this campus other than maybe five times this year to do some type of testing or a picture. And so how do you meet that need, right? How do they uh, become, uh, be a normal sixth grade boy, right? That is, you know, that was a few years ago for me, but mm-hmm. I remember being goofy and awkward and being that around other sixth grade boys and girls. Yeah. And that in a sense has been taken away from some of those kids who stare at a, a at an iPad all day long. Right. Yeah. And don't have that opportunity just to be a goofy sixth grade boy or girl. Exactly. Uh, so that's, uh, that's, that's been a challenge and, and it's been fun to watch that over the last six or seven weeks that things return to normal in the normal goofy sixth grade, fifth grade ways mm-hmm. that I've solely focused on from a standpoint of, yes, they'll learn history from me, but it's more important for them to act like normal human beings that they would as a sixth grader in that goofy self in their goofy selves. Um, yeah. And I'd rather see that than anything else right now. So. Yeah, absolutely. Yep. And so I guess you've had, you've had more and more students coming back to campus. Sure. We're, um, probably less than 25 in our entire middle school, which is probably roughly 250 students. I would say we probably have maybe 10%, maybe even less than that, that, um, are still, um, for whatever reason, mm-hmm. uh, are remote, um, because the school has offered it. Yeah. Um, and so they've, uh, whether they've moved somewhere literally, um, you know, to other States or other cities have taken mm. advantage of that or yeah. that they have a family that's you know at risk health wise. And so, yes, it's um, so like on certain days, my B days, I have all on campus students on my A days. I have two classes back to back that have remote. So it's even a mind shift, mindset shift uh, for me mm-hmm. going day to day, because one day I'm not thinking about having to get on and Zoom with a group of students. And then I'm like, wait, oh, today's an A day. I got to get on my Zoom for those three or four kids because they're relying on seeing my face or yeah. setting up my extra iPad in my room so that they can feel like they're a part of the classroom by seeing their friends or we'll have a, a virtual day where we'll get all of us will get on zoom, whether we're on campus or at home so yeah. that we can feel like we're together in class. So yeah. Those are you know, just shifts, pivots, right. That you try to create an atmosphere yeah. that is inclusive of all kids in, in any scenario. No, absolutely. And I, and we've seen the same trend in my, my kids school, they're in a public school, but the same more and more kids are, are coming back and, uh, you know, trying to finish out the year in person with their friends and with their teachers. So, yeah, I think that's uh, common uh, among the schools that are allowing it, uh, allowing students to be in, per- in person. Yeah. So, um, as you know, uh, I work with early career teachers. I I mostly teach uh, college students who are considering a career in education. Uh, the majority of them uh, go on to to at least try teaching for a while. Uh, many of them uh, do teaching for uh, for many years, you know. And I haven't been around long enough to see if they do it for their entire career yet. <laughs> I guess someday I'll know that. Uh, but you know, if you had if you had one piece of advice to give uh, a young teacher, uh, what would that uh, advice be? Be authentically you. Um, certainly, we all have to whether you're in public or independent, private, charter, you know, whatever version of school you're in, there are certain, you know, um, rules you have to follow. Right? Yeah. You have to, whether it's lesson plans or standardized tests or, you know, fill in the blank. But in, in my years of not only in education, but just life, mm-hmm. I've learned to be authentically myself, whether it's the style that I teach or I have, you know, three, principles that I follow um, every year when I start with my kids, it's three R's ready, responsible, and respectful. 
Mm-hmm. And ever since I started teaching um, seven years ago, uh, I sat and reflected upon and there are all kinds of ideas and motivations and methods out there that people have. And that's great. But I, I wanted to realize if I can't be authentically or genuinely me, um, then that's the kids are going to see through that. Um, and, and for me, although these kids are far young, younger than me, you know, and on, on some level, I need to be professional. And yes, I'm the teacher and the student. The way to, I feel like, build the best relationships or the most authentic relationships is by being yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, my kids want to know about my daughters. My kids want to know about my life. And yeah. now there are certain things I'm not going to share. But in terms of just being me, I think kids value that. They want to know that. And yeah. you know where to draw the line, whether you're a you know, first-year teacher that's in your early 20s, right? That They've just come through your, your program and they're you know nervous just to set foot in the door for the first time because they're yeah. looking at kids that are five or six years younger. Yeah, your boundaries might need to be different. Yeah. But authentically, you, um, you know, when you try to be something or somebody else or try to be the perfect teacher in whatever way, shape or form, the moment that technology fails you, you know, you're going to show your true colors. And if you don't authentically know who that is, and that's different for everybody at every age. Mm -hmm. But for me, as I've transitioned into education, uh, what I've learned is if if I'm authentically me, uh, when you asked me earlier about defining success, I think that's why I have such a good relationship with my kids that are now in their 30s that I knew yeah. 20 years ago or that are now in their 20s that are getting married and having kids. I had hmm. students that were, you know, my first year teaching are now last night. They made an announcement at a Ranger game that they're getting married and they're having a kid. And they were oh my, my very first class that I taught in education. <laughs> and they stay connected with me on Facebook because I was authentically me. Right. And I was able to congratulate them, you know, seven years after that. And hmm. that may seem like a little thing, but I was authentically me with them when I was a permanent sub in their class before I ever had my own official classroom. Yeah. And that connection with them may, may have made all the difference in terms of how they see life and how they are authentically themselves to others. Yeah. And how they inspire other people. Uh, it's like the kindest conversation we had our other. If I am authentically being those things in ways that are different than how the world might be today, Mm -hmm. Um, especially for young people who are taught to be, not taught to be self-centered, but everything is about them. If I'm that different light that says, no, it's about being kind to others or inspiring others, that's authentically who I am. That's how I've been all my life. Yeah, I think when we get away from being authentically ourselves, um, and that might change over time. You and I, again, are a little bit older. Yeah, Maybe somebody that's coming out of college that may not know that about themselves. Be okay to even change as you learn that about yourself. Incorporate that into who you are versus trying to say, I always have to be this way, Mm -hmm. right? If something I've learned along the way is I can add to that toolbox, as they say in my educator toolbox, then, you know, add that in. Don't change who you are. Don't change who you are for anybody. Wow. Yeah, that's great advice. Similar to that, you know, looking back on your own career as a teacher up to this point, you know, you know, what, what kind of comes to the forefront of your mind? if you had to characterize your teaching career up to this point? Uh, Fulfilling. Um, It's a calling. And I would think that in my seven years to see how I've grown as an educator in, in not only in the way that I have managed my classrooms, right? Because when you first start, you're there like an hour before class gets started. And you know, you're (laughs) not to say that I'm still not here early and do the way that I like to do things, but um, it's been very fulfilling in terms of how it characterize it because, um, you know, each day is a new day. The way that you teach kids, if you don't go in with this agenda that it has to be done this way every time, every day, 
Um, although there's a good rhythm, as I shared earlier, about um, you know being in a school setting, mm-hmm. being open and, and willing to let let the class or the experience take you wherever it goes, being open to that, um, and, and realizing that you know every day is an opportunity to teach and to learn. Um, yeah. You know, uh, it's it's very fulfilling in that way for me that there have been no two days that have been the same in the seven years that I've taught, and it and that's okay. Uh, as much as school stays the same in terms of rhythm of being open to that every day. And I think keeping that open mind uh, would be what I would say characterizes uh, how I teach is because every kid is different, right? Mm -hmm. They each have a different story or a different experience and how they learn and how uh, you see success in them. And if you say, this is the only way that I define success, then it's, you're going to shortchange a lot of kids and yourself in terms of what you may learn from a kid who loves, you know, parodies of music. Like mm-hmm. Mr. Betts, who does a YouTube, you know, shout out to Mr. Betts, who does all these parodies <laughs> on like Roanoke that's based on Let It Go from Frozen. That, yeah. You know, some of my students might want to go write their own parody of song that would never be able to master or make an A plus on a test because that's not their learning language, you know, yeah. but being able to, to characterize flexibility, uh, fulfillment and joy yeah. of the learning process, not only for the students, but for myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really great. That's what I would characterize it. So. No, that's 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 excellent. You know, and I think that's a that's a good place to wrap up our conversation. Uh, and so uh, I really appreciate you taking some time to share your experiences uh, with me, with uh, th- with the listeners, uh, share a lot of your wisdom. You know, this has been uh, a great learning experience for me. And of course, it's always great to to connect and get a chance just to uh, to catch up. Yeah, it's been the best. I, I really appreciate how we've connected in the way we've had over the last three years and how we'll continue to uh, connect with each other in years to come about where life has taken us and the journey that we're sharing. That sounds great. All right. Well, thank you so much, Clint. Thanks, Clint.